I personally think it's wrong to look at any one data point and make a decision based on that. We look at thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of data points that are all kind of coming together to kind of look at the holistic view of the asset itself, the market, but also of our entire portfolio as a whole as well. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Love Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Vina Jetty from Vibe Funds. Today, Vina is going to teach us about a few things in the multifamily investing world, particularly in light of the COVID, let's say, situation that we find ourselves in uh, as investors and as citizens of the planet. We're going to talk about selecting a market to invest in, both in and out of a recession, just things to look at, how she and her company, how they get some of that information, some targets to aim for. We also are going to talk about underwriting deals and how Vina and her colleagues, her co-investors, everybody she works with, how they have, I don't want to say changed their underwriting, but how they have adapted to the new reality of this recession so that they are doing the right deals that will weather the storm of COVID and that they expect to make it through this uh, this recession that we're in and come out the better for it on the other side, being conservative, doing good deals, investing for cash flow, and making sure you're using all the right numbers before you invest in a deal. That's a few of the things that we're going to talk about today with Vina. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Vogt. I'm a real estate investor and real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love learning new things. I love talking with experienced investors who are doing big things like Vina is doing, learning what they're doing in this market and bringing that information to you. And that's where you're going to learn today. Vina just closed a huge, huge, enormous $80 million deal. She's got a $400 million portfolio and just continuing to grow. And the proof's in the pudding. She's getting big things done. And there is just so much to be learned from her expertise. So without any further ado, here we go with Vina Jetty from Vibes Funds. Vina, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to talk with you, even though we've already been sitting here talking before we recorded for a <laughs> half an hour. But, uh, you know, it's good times, good times. Yes. For our listeners out there, before we you know get into what we're going to talk about today, can you tell us a bit about your background and you know where you are now, all the awesome things that you've done? Sum it up yes. real quick. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Real quick. That's brevity isn't my strong suit, but I'll try. <laughs> so I am a multifamily syndicator. I target large a B class value add yield blended um, multifamily assets in my target core markets. I started because I took the shortcut in because my parents are actually successful real estate investors. My mom actually had a successful real estate investing company. And so they've been investing in real estate for over 30 years. I kind of got a really great foundation with them. And so um, I took that and kind of built on it. And now I have um, a little over 400 million in my portfolio in Texas, Florida, and Georgia are my three current states. I'm looking to add North Carolina and South Carolina in the coming year or so, just like everybody else, I'm sure. (laughs) 
So um, we find ourselves, as we're talking today, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, and undoubtedly, or I certainly don't, I don't doubt that in the future when this goes live, uh, we'll still be within the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic. And you know, one of the questions that comes up, particularly on bigger pockets, all the time, is mm-hmm. selecting a market. And mm-hmm. now that we're in a major recession, you mentioned a few of the areas where you invest, and yes. I'd like to talk about the criteria you use kind of at a, you know, higher level to mm-hmm. select the market. And then, you know, we can get into why you like the markets that you like, but we'll talk about the strategy first and then, you know, get into the yeah. results. Yeah. So typically when I'm targeting a market, I'm kind of like a crazy person because I study my markets for a really, really long time, mainly because like, I want to know everything I possibly can about the market. And I want to see how it does over, you know, X amount of time. So usually if I'm entering a market, I've been looking at it for at least a year, sometimes two years or longer. So I've been looking at the Carolinas for about two years now and underwriting deals. I've made an offer on a couple of deals, but the price point has just been too high for me to get into. So when I'm selecting markets, um, I'm really looking for where are the people going, right? So I want to see population growth. I want to see stability I also really want to see diversity in the job sector that's there. Um, so I don't want to go anywhere that's totally reliant on oil and gas, for example, or that's reliant on any one industry. I want to see diversity so that if any industry does take a hit, we're not susceptible to any kind of market changes in that local submarket area. I also like to look at states that have a high tech influence. So you know, Silicon Valley has traditionally been the mecca of tech companies, but we're seeing a large migration to uh, areas like uh, Orlando, for example, which is a market that we're pretty heavily invested into. They've added more tech jobs over 2019. And, you know, 2020 is a little bit of a <laughs> uncertain year, or I guess an outlier, if you will, but they added more jobs in 2019 to their market than Silicon Valley did. And so those are things that I like to see in markets that I'm entering into. So I want to see that stability. I want to see that job growth. I want to see the population growth. And I want to see, um, you know, a generally a landlord-friendly state when I'm looking. So there are a few, you know, I have a few follow-up questions about that. Again, <laughs> things that come up on bigger pockets all the time that I think we can get a lot of these mm-hmm. questions answered answer today. So first you said, um, not first, but you said about, Industry diversity, you don't want to be too heavy in like oil and gas, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you really know whether you're looking at a with stats, wherever you find the stats, like whether a market is too heavily weighted because maybe 20% of the jobs are in the oil and gas sector. Is that too yeah. much? I don't know. It really depends on the market fundamentals. So it's hard to answer that with like a checklist of, okay, we don't want to see more than this and cross it out. And that's basically, it's so annoying because it's like basically deal dependent in everything we do, right? So one deal we might be like, okay, yeah, that's okay. And then in another market, we might say, no, wait, no, 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 that's not okay. So it really depends on the market. As far as like collecting data goes, we pay for access to this data. So we use, you know, Axiometrics, CoStar, Yardi, Um, There's like a hundred different data aggregation companies that'll give you like a report on this and like where the job sectors are. I think NMHC um, has a pretty good like free version. Bigger Pockets has a lot of content on it as well. So it's not unaccessible. It's just you have to go and you have to look for it and you have to kind of look at it as a holistic view. So 
I personally think it's wrong to look at any one data point and make a decision based on that. We look at thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of data points that are all kind of coming together to kind of look at the holistic view of the asset itself, the market, but also of our entire portfolio as a whole as well. So in, you know, in studying these markets, I'm sure you get to know the different sub markets and you can tell, Mm -hmm. you know, if a deal's on the east side of the town as opposed to the west side and, you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But I, I, when I think about a multifamily investment, I think about the, like the business plan or what's the tenant experience feel like? Does that, does that ring true to you at all? Do you go through anything like that? Absolutely. I think now more than ever, we're looking at more amenities plays, right? So I want to see assets that have a good amenities package. We're all stuck at home. Uh, People are going crazy, you know, depending on your tenant demographic, they may have, you know, a kid or two at home and they don't want them in this apartment all day, every day, right? Because now parents are, you know, they're teachers and they're chefs and they're working. And so they're wearing a lot of hats right now. And I just think that having to do all that without kind of any outlet for the kids or the family to just get out and get that fresh air is really tough. So yeah, I do definitely look at what the tenant experience is like, because that's what essentially is driving your revenue. The better the experience and the more positive it is, the better tenant you get, the higher your revenue is, um, the more you can drive that income and returns for your investors. So um, in years past, especially over this market cycle, one of the things that's been said about the different classes of multifamily, say A, B, C, D class uh, multifamily, is that when a recession comes, the A class renters move down to B, B move to C, and so on and so forth. And that's why, say, B is safer to be in than A and what have you. Has that been your experience or your observation? Has that really, did you, did you, would you agree with that uh, thought first? And then has that been your observation here now that we're actually in a recession? Yeah, generally speaking, I do agree with that thought, mainly because we kind of saw that happen in the last recession as well. And then actually, like data for this recession so far has shown that actually, like the affordable housing. So like kind of that like B minus C plus housing has actually fared the best through the recession so far. And I don't know if we're really in the recession yet, but we're definitely seeing a change to the market now, right? So whether this is like a blip on a radar or it's the start of kind of like a larger recession, we don't know yet. It's too soon to say, but just in the market changes that we've seen in the last year or so, you know, since COVID started to where we are today, um, we have I we have seen that movement. Class A assets are definitely suffering more. Um, Class B assets, and that's the majority of what we own, have been actually kind of like insulated from any kind of major issues. We haven't really seen a whole lot of our assets go through issues collecting. Now, I have one asset that is you know a little bit tougher. I mean, you know, I have like a tenant base. I can't really withstand the downturn of an economy and they miss two weeks of because of a COVID quarantine. And it's like a totally different financial crisis for them. So, you know, we have one asset that's doing that, but generally speaking, we haven't seen a whole lot of impact. I think the stimulus checks have actually really helped kind of soften the blow that we would have otherwise seen. But yeah, I don't, I don't think that we've seen a huge issue in the B class and even C class assets. Yeah, I would say my uh, recession, I'm just going to keep calling it recession experience so far as 
it's been a lot uh, better than I expected. At least when we were mm-hmm. first getting into COVID, it looked like the whole world was going to fall yeah. apart. It hasn't actually <laughs> fallen apart. So yes, that's the good news. Yeah. <laughs> so regarding um, underwriting as well, and, and moving forward, looking into, you know, the future years, as we talk, we're kind of coming to the close of 2020, we're getting into 2021. And as mm-hmm. real estate investors, we need to be planning for, you know, years down the road. Mm-hmm. What is your expectation for things like rent growth, occupancy, and how are you factoring that into your underwriting for mm-hmm. deals you're looking at now? Yeah. So through 2020, we did zero deals until October and we closed an $80 million deal in the Marietta suburb of Atlanta. And when we underwrote that deal, I thought we were going to do no deals in 2020 because nothing was working with the new underwriting that we were doing and making certain changes. So for example, on that deal, some of the changes that we made, and I think we're going to continue making these adjustments to underwriting is We planned for zero rent growth for the first 12 months. Usually we would start that right away. We would go and we'd start renovating right away. So we actually are now triggering a different CapEx schedule. So we're waiting till month 13 to start renovations, which is actually kind of pushing out your business plan, right? So um, now you're renovating month like 13 to 36, you know, years two and three versus zero to 24. Now, of course, this is how we've underwritten the deal. In practice, what we're actually implementing is going to be what we're calling renovation on demand. So what we're doing is we're showing tenants, we're like, okay, you can live in you know this unit for $1,000 that's not renovated, or you can live in this shiny, pretty new asset or renovated unit for $1,200 or whatever that premium is and letting them choose. So what they're doing then is they're picking which one they want, whichever lease they sign. If they sign the renovated one, we're going in and turning the unit very quickly. Then in about 14 days, um, we can get that unit turned. So then we're not missing out on the rent growth that is available there by not renovating. We're not increasing our lost lease by not renovating units that actually can be renovated. But we are being you know, cash conscious and we are conserving our capital and we're going in with a very methodical way to kind of increase that above where our pro forma numbers are. Another big change that we're making is we are making sure that we are not underwriting for as high of other income as we might have historically. So we're leaving a lot of avenues that are already implemented on the asset. We're leaving a lot of those off of our T12 or sorry, not T12, our pro forma. Uh, So we're leaving that off of the pro forma so that we're not really relying on that. If we do it, great. If we don't, that's fine. And the other thing that you had talked about was occupancy. Um, So historically in most of our markets, they're going to be vacant about three to 5% vacancy rates. Uh, we're now underwriting to like eight, nine percent, and we're stress testing as high as like fifteen percent. We're adjusting where we want to kind of see our break-even occupancy land. So historically, you know, in the seventies, eighties, it's fine because the asset's still pretty robust. And I mean, we don't usually see assets get that low, but now we're like, for example, Element Forty One, the one we went into in Marietta, that deal has a break-even occupancy at like 63%. And we, we're also raising more reserves. So we have a lot more cash than we've had historically. Um, because really what we're trying to do is we're trying to sustain through a storm. We know this is a temporary situation, right? Like this is a blip on the radar in terms of the investment horizon of multifamily. But if we can make it through whatever that storm is for however long that is, then we can kind of 
recover from that. And so I always tell people when I'm underwriting, I don't actually care if there's like a million dollar plumbing fix. What I care about is if I know about it or not going in, because if I can plan for it, then I don't, I could spend $10 million on plumbing fine, but it's going to adjust the pricing I'm going to pay and my return projections, et cetera. So it's not the actual numbers. It's not knowing the numbers. That's a bigger risk. Yeah. That, uh, the, the, the plumbing fix is definitely important to know ahead of time, especially yes. if it's going to be uh, a million dollars. Right. Now, <laughs> since you've um, brought that up, you know, for the passive investors out there who are evaluating deals like this, I mean, how do they really, how do they know, how do they verify that their sponsors have done things like look into whether they're going to be major plumbing fixes or, you know, doing that proper, thorough, physical due diligence? How do you verify that? Yeah. I don't know if there's like a good way to like verify it where you can like go and Google something and find out like, oh right. yeah, Vina totally did the due diligence on LMM 41 and it looks great. Um, really, I think what it is, is getting to know the people you're working with, right? So I have investors, I talk to them as detailed or as not detailed as they want. Um, but you know, if they want to talk about the checklist I go through during due diligence, I'm happy to talk about it and give them kind of what we we actually are pretty proactive with our investors. So I do keep them up to date on as we're going through the closing period, I do share with them like, hey, uh, this is where the T12 is trending. Um, we've seen this change in the last three weeks or whatever that data, those data points I have are, I share that with them. And usually our data is just getting better from where we initially offered the project because we've hopefully been conservative enough that we're not like, wait a second, there's this huge problem. So usually it's like, hey, this is doing better than what we projected. This is also doing better. This is in line with what we projected. And so I think the verification really has to come from your trust and your relationship with the sponsor versus, you know, there's not really a third party that verifies the due diligence, unfortunately. Yeah. How are you going to do that? And, you know, especially in the higher income professional brackets mm -hmm. where people are you know, accredited before they start getting into yes. passive syndication investing. They might not be expert real estate investors. They don't maybe don't know to verify these yeah. things, you know, high income, what have you, or or yeah. invested elsewhere. They might, you know, they might see a 506C deal that they can invest in because it's publicly advertised. You know, they don't have to pre have a pre-existing relationship. Is that something that that getting to know the sponsor, is that something that you can do an investor? can do quickly before a deal closes or should they forget that FOMO pass on the first deal and just get to know the guy first? Like, what do you think about that? Is that, you know, I usually evaluate my investors on like a case by case basis. So I have about like 70% of my investor database is physicians. Um, and you know, that's by virtue. And we talked about this. My husband's also a physician. So it's, you know, just our circle, it's our world that we play in. And, you know, one investor refers another investor, so most of my investors actually either have already known who I am and what I've been doing, or they have been referred by somebody else in their trusted network. So it's harder for me to say like, no, you definitely shouldn't do it. But I do think that anybody who isn't comfortable investing or doesn't understand the investment or is talking to a sponsor who doesn't explain the investment, answer all of your questions. I do think that that is a moment to kind of like take a pause. I tell investors that are a little bit like shy or gun shy on pulling the trigger on something like, just wait, there'll be another investment. Um, you know, and, and you know, this, like most of us capital is like the easiest problem for us to solve. It's actually finding the great deal. That's much harder. And so 
I have plenty of capital. I go to a wait list on all of my deals. So I can move down to the next person. I'm not going to be offended or my feelings aren't going to be hurt. What I actually would prefer is I have an investor who's as excited about the deal as I am because I've, I've done it before, like way back in the beginning when I first like started taking investor capital and I was doing larger projects and we could fund personally or at least comfortably personally. Um, I was, you know, I was taking investors that weren't really as excited as I was about the deal. And I could tell that they were like a little bit more hesitant to get into the deal. Now I just don't do it because what ends up happening is they're stressed the whole time. Um, You know, they're not enjoying it. They're not excited about it. They don't wake up saying like, oh my gosh, I own a multifamily property in Georgia. They're going like, oh my gosh, I own a multifamily property in Georgia. Is it, how do I know I own it? And it's just, there's no trust there. It's just not a good experience for either of us because every time I have to manage, you know, them, I can't manage the asset for that hour or that minute. And so that's kind of the trade-off there. Yeah. Got to prioritize your time. and Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just better for everyone when everyone's excited. And also it makes times like COVID where you might be communicating something that is not planned and kind of scary and unknown. Like I'm communicating that to my investors. And if I don't have that like foundation or that basis of the relationship, then it's not going to, that's going to be an even less fun conversation than it already is. So (laughs) true. Hey, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Dina, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I've got a stretch. All right. I'm ready. All right. Number one, (laughs) what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I mean, okay, I know this is like probably not the answer you're looking for, but it's like into my husband because now I have my kids and my family and that's really what I do all of this for. So best investment was into marrying my husband. (laughs) Working out for you. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Gosh, I've made a lot of bad investments (laughs) over time. Uh, So I passively invest into different startups and stuff like that. I have one investment right now. And to be fair, I don't really consider it a bad investment because I went into it knowing it's like ultra high risk. And I invested into a company. Ultimately, it's not working out. And so, or at least not how I planned. And so, you know, I'm going to lose a little bit of money there, but, you know, high risk, high reward. I could have also made a lot of money there. And so, you know, I'm, I go into deals knowing that there's risk involved and it's a risk adjusted return. So if I'm looking at something with like a 10 X return, then there's 10 X the risk, you know? So that's kind of how I look at deals, but yeah. So I would say some of my like more passive startup investments have not gone as I wanted, but it happens. Yeah. Those seem to be, seem to be higher risk than uh, they're really advertised as on uh, say like shark tank. Yeah, no, those are like very, very high risk investments. But I make a lot of them because you also could be investing into like Bantam Bagels on Shark Tank. That was like a, they sold for like 25 or $35 million to Starbucks or whoever. So yeah, I might not be Starbucks. I don't know who they sold to, but somebody for like 25 or 35 million. So you you never know. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Gosh, I, you know, and I said this to you earlier, like if we had a whole like week long of podcasts dedicated to this, I could probably answer all of like all of the lessons I've learned. But um, I think the most important one, at least top of mind right now is um, to 
be aware of who you're partnering with. So whether you're a passive investor coming in as a limited partner or you're a general partner that is partnering with other sponsors or um, just in general, your brand, your reputation, it's very important. And make sure you know that the person you're partnering with shares the same goals and has like the same alignment of interests with you and what you're doing. Because like, for example, I'm very lucky to have income outside of multifamily syndications. What I do, I love it. I do it because I love it, but I don't have to do a deal to put food on my table or to put my kids in diapers. So I can truly make decisions in the best interests, my investors without really worrying about it. And I found that there are other sponsors who don't have that same situation. It's totally not a knock on them. It's just the reality of life, right? Like everyone has to make a living, but it makes it a whole lot harder to not go after a deal because of a fee or to take a split out of a syndication that you're rightfully and legally owed. But I just don't do it if my investors aren't hitting their numbers. I, you know, I'm just not going to take money out of a deal when my investors aren't being taken care of first. So I think who you're partnering with and having that like like-minded outlook on, and especially on investors is kind of the biggest thing for me. Yeah, it's a super important point. I mean, there are a number of folks here who have not been able to do great deals this year, and they maybe had a thought leadership business where they host live events, and that's a huge part of their income, and mm-hmm. that's shut down too. And then now, you know, what do they do? Maybe they're not making enough in cash flows off of their portfolio mm-hmm. to support themselves. So big risk, yeah. big risk. Yeah, right I mean, it's, it's tough. It's tough out there. And like, I don't knock anyone. And I, I recognize I'm like extremely privileged to be in this position, uh, but it's the reality of my situation. And I look for other people who share that same kind of sentiment. Um, you know, I have a partner that I work with who didn't have other cash flow and he still like cut his and his uh, sponsor fees and promotes down to zero when his investors weren't making their returns. And so to me, that's like a sign of the character and the type of person I want to be doing business with because that's even more impressive than, you know, someone who is eating outside of this. So yeah, that's awesome. Well, Vina, thank you for joining us today and teaching us all of these lessons about building such an awesome portfolio and what to do during a recession. If folks want to get in touch, if they want to learn more, what have you, where can they find you? They can just go to my website, vivefunds.com, B-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. And you can submit a request to be on my calendar. We can get on a call or you can send me an email, whatever is easiest. Awesome. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. For everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.